Well, I'm uh, so thankful for the Lord bringing uh, Jim and Sandy to UBC many years ago and more recently, uh, Aldine and Kirsten, and so grateful to be able to serve with them. Um, it's an answer to prayer. You guys, it was uh, almost, I guess, 11 months ago or so when we started rolling out the Make Him Known vision to the church last year, and we talked about our desire to hire um, some leaders for, or a leader of our mission and mercy ministries, and um, now the Lord has answered that prayer. And so very grateful for that, very grateful for Jim and Aldine, and uh, I gotta say, it's pretty cool. You can see that, you can tell that Aldine and Kirsten are newlyweds because they stand up here and hold hands the whole time. Isn't that cute? Um, it was, I mean it, it was good, right? <laughs> Come on, I liked it. Um, so anyways, if you have your Bible this morning, you can take it out and open up to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 18. That's going to be our text. And um, as you're turning there, I just want to mention something that I mentioned um, the past two services. It's crazy for me to think that it's been 21 years since the events of 9-11 took place. Um, and uh, on days like this, it reminds me of the importance of the church because, you know, 21 years ago, we were hit in the face with the fact that evil is real. And yet in the face of the reality of evil, we're also struck with this truth. Our God is real. And one day the Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear. And sin and sorrow and all the effects of sin will be no more. And our God will reign. And so we look forward to that day and we remember it on uh, days like this. Um, I also want to say this before we get into the sermon. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, whether you're joining us here at Maine or if you're watching over at East, um, it is an honor to have new guests with us every single Sunday. I've met a lot of new families over the past couple weeks, and I'm just so grateful for the Lord continuing to bring people here. We are a church that exists to help people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ who know him and make him known. And that's why we're here as a church. And um, I want, if you're new with us today, um, I, whether this is your first time today or maybe you've been coming for a while but are just looking for your next step to plug in, I would like to invite you to think about something. My wife and I host a group every quarter of the calendar year called Make Him Known, the group. And in that group, we introduce people over the course of six weeks to the vision for our church, the vision that God has given us. And I would love to invite you to be part of that. This quarter, we're going to be meeting on Wednesday nights. Um, we're going to be meeting right here in the church building. If you're interested in reading uh, more about that group, you can go to the groups page on our website and just click on the links and uh, following the links for Make Him Known, the group. You can express your interest in joining there. And I would fo I'll follow up with you and I uh, would love to have you if that uh, sounds like something that the Lord leads you uh, to take that step. So um, we'd love to have you. Today we're going to continue on in our study through the book of Acts. Uh, this is week number 31 in our sermon series. This series is uh, already, we've already progressed a good way. Uh, we're going to be continuing this series all the way into 2023. But today we're picking up in the midst of history, right? That's what this is. Acts is, it's not a story, it's not a fable, um, it's not an allegory, it's history of the church. And so now we are picking up in church history after some significant events have occurred. The Lord Jesus has died and ro risen again. 
He has commissioned his disciples to take the gospel out to the rest of the world. Um, the disciples have been doing so. They started in Jerusalem and they've expanded their way out into the Gentile world. And as they've been going, uh, the Holy Spirit has been moving with power and giving them courage and boldness in their witness. But everywhere they go, they're getting hit with two types of responses. Uh, they're getting hit with both great reception and great opposition. And most recently in the story, we saw them go into a town called Iconium and they experienced both great reception and great opposition there, but they left Iconium and they went to a town called Lystra. If you remember, here's our little children's map that we put on the screen last week. You can see Iconium kind of towards the top of the page and Lystra just south of that. But the events of today's story are taking place there um, in, the, in the city of Lystra. So we're going to read chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Uh, I'm going to work our way down through these verses, um, make several teaching points along the way, and then I want to bring it home with some very specific application. Today I want to revolve our application around this whole idea of Christian celebrity culture that we find ourselves in these days. Um, I, I think that that's an, a very appropriate topic to address because it ties right into the main point of this text. And the main point of this sermon text is this. All credit for effective ministry belongs to God, not to man. All credit for effective ministry belongs to God, not to man. So let's get into our text, starting with verse 8. Verse 8 says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Well, we've met uh, a man like this before, haven't we? Back in our early studies in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, we saw a man in the same situation. Uh, in chapter 3, we saw Peter and John uh, met a man just outside the temple who had been crippled from birth. That man was healed, and many Jews at that point believed the gospel. Well, here we have a very similar situation, almost the exact same situation. Another man who has been crippled from birth, but instead of Peter and John seeing him, now we have Paul and Barnabas. And instead of this happening around a group of Jews, now we're seeing that's going to happen among the Gentile crowds. Because, remember, what's happening in the book of Acts? The gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria area and then out to the rest of the Gentile world. So this situation is very similar. We meet this crippled man here. And for a moment, let's just put ourselves in his shoes. Imagine what it would be like for you if you had never been able to walk, never been able to take a step, never been able to get out of your own bed without some assistance, not ever being able to go from point A to point B without someone carrying you along or helping you be transported. Imagine everywhere you go, people in the community recognize you as the man who can't walk, the person who's very much in need. This was a crippled man. And verse nine says that as he listened to Paul speaking, Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and began walking. Now, I'm imagining the Apostle Paul preaching here. He's preaching Christ. He's telling people all about Jesus, about how their sins can be forgiven through faith in Christ. He's calling them to believe. And as he's preaching the gospel, he notices that there's a crippled man who's listening very closely to him. And I love how it says that Paul looked intently at him. Have you ever, ever, have you ever experienced the preacher's stare? I get by the chuckles that some of you have, you know, the one, the one when you get when you fall asleep in church. 
right? The one when you're checking your, checking your sports scores during, during the worship service. Pastor sees you. You know what I mean? Um, not that I would ever do that to you guys, ever. You know what I mean? Just messing with you. Um, but in our text, you know, we have Paul looking intently at this man. And uh, it wasn't because he wasn't listening. It's because he was listening. The man was very much in tune with what Paul was sharing. And Paul sees him, which just kind of stood out to me in the text this week. Because the Apostle Paul noticed a broken man. He, in other words, the Apostle Paul didn't just go somewhere and preach and look for the people who had it all put together, the people who were probably very successful, the people who, um, you know, were influencers and wealthy, you know, those types of things. Who did he see here? He, he sees a broken man. And um, I don't know about you, but just as I was reading through this passage, I, it just kind of warmed my heart and, and stood out to me to remember the Lord sees broken people. And... I'm so grateful that the Lord sees broken people. I'm so grateful for churches that see broken people and church leaders that see broken people because I remember in my season of brokenness, after living several years of my life just for myself and living in sin and then starting to come back into the church community, I'm so, so grateful for the people in my life who welcomed me in, who saw me, who paid attention, who loved me and wrapped their arms around me. And God used the community of the church and the ministry of Christian leaders to help bring kind of his restorative healing work in my life and in my heart. And um, man, if you're broken, which we all are, um, I just want you to hear it. The Lord sees you. We want to be a church that sees you. We want to be a church that comes alongside the very broken people in our world who need Jesus and need the gospel. So Paul saw this man and saw that he had faith and Paul tells him to stand upright, you know, and so this man just stood right up. He's like, it was immediate, you know, it's not like training and baby steps and falling over and being cute, you know, it's not like he had to go through physical therapy and drink a bunch of protein shakes and muscle milk to build his strength back up, you know what I mean? He just, boom, just sprung up and started to walk and this is the same thing that happened in Acts chapter three. So just like in Acts chapter three, what are the crowds going to do when they see this man who had been crippled from birth? What's going to happen? Let's see what happens in verse 11. Verse 11 says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in uh, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So what we have here is the crowds are recognizing that a miracle has been done. And they saw that this man just sprung up like a fountain, you know, he started to just walk. And in other words, they've seen the work of heaven being done on earth. So they ascribe heavenly status to earthly men. Paul and Barnabas get ascribed to have deity. Look at verse 12. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So in this culture, inundated with Greek mythology, Zeus was the Greek god of sky and thunder, and he was really the chief god over the other gods. Hermes was another Greek god with many, uh, you know, kind of areas of authority himself, but one of his roles was to be the messenger on behalf of the gods. So since Paul was the speaker, the people equated him with, with Hermes. Verse 13 says this, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So this is different, right? We don't experience this today. We don't live in this culture, but what was going on there? 
Why were they bringing oxen and wearing their garlands and starting to make, wanting to make sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas? Well, it helps us to understand a little bit of history. So between the years of 43 BC and 17 AD, there was a Roman poet alive whose name was Ovid. And Ovid became popular really during the New Testament era. Um, his most famous work was a work called Metamorphosis, where he really wrote kind of an epic series of books, um, 15 of them actually. And in those books, it was, they were just filled with many of the ideas and the understanding of Greek mythology that some of us have uh, today, still today. Um, but he, in one of his books, he told the story about Zeus and Hermes, um, that they, they came down from heaven to earth. And when they came to earth, they were looking for a place to stay. They, they really couldn't find any place to take them in. Um, and eventually they made their way to Lystra, the, the location of our, our Bible text today. And there they finally found one couple who would take them in. They were a very poor couple. The man was named Philemon. His wife was named Bacchus. And after being cared for by the couple and receiving the blessing from this couple, the gods take them up to a mountainside while the gods just destroy all the city and destroy all the people who ignored them. And while everything's being destroyed, the home of Philemon and Bacchus actually gets transformed into a beautiful temple. And uh, the gods honor um, this couple by saying, you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. And they say, we want to be a priest and priestess in this temple unto you, Zeus, you know, and Hermes. And, and so that's the way the story goes until that couple dies. And then Greek mythology says that after they died, their bodies turned into great and powerful trees that grew in the center of the city, okay? So that's what was going on. We might think that's crazy. That's what the people believed in that time and in that era. The people of Lystra were very fami familiar with this portion of Greek uh, mythology. And in Ovid's story, those who blessed Zeus and Hermes were blessed themselves, but those who ignore them, those who ignored them got killed. So the people in Lystra, they didn't want to be killed. They didn't want to have that same thing happen to them. So they start to say, let's make sacrifices to these men who we believe are Zeus and Hermes, right? So that's what's going on there. Now look at verse 14. Paul and Barnabas, how are they going to respond? Verse 14 says, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So Paul and Barnabas, man, they hear that the crowds are referring to them as gods, and their response was to tear their garments, which was like a symbolic way of saying, hey, what you're doing is blasphemy against the one true God. And so Paul and Barnabas, they don't want the people to be confused. They don't want to be seen as people who, you know, are themselves good news. They want to bring good news about God to the people. They, they don't want to be seen as gods in the flesh. They want to proclaim to these people the God who came in the flesh. Because why? What's the point of this text? All credit for effective ministry belongs to God, not to man. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are living out in this text. That's why Paul calls them to turn away from vain things. That phrase vain things in the original language, it means um, empty things or lifeless things, ineffective things that are unable to produce results. And so Paul is calling them to repent and to turn from lifeless things, uh, turn away from their lifeless gods to the living God. The one who has power and, and, and can actually make things happen like he just did when he, you know, just healed this man who was crippled his whole life. 
So Paul continues to call them to turn and repent and turn to the true and living God. Um, Verse 16 says that Paul says, this is the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So when we see this in verse 16, what we see is Paul is speaking to a crowd of, you know, really Greek, unbelieving people. And he starts to appeal to them to believe in the living God through, his first appeal is through the means of creation. And so this is different, right? This is different from the way that Paul has been appealing to the crowds when he preaches. Usually he'll go into a city, he'll uh, go into the Jewish synagogue, and his normal mode of operation is to talk to these Jews about the Jewish scriptures and how Jesus Christ of Nazareth fulfilled them and that they should um, repent and, and believe upon Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. But he appeals to scripture when he's talking to the Jews. Here he's not talking to Jews. He's talking to Gentiles, people who believe in Greek mythology and things. And so how does he appeal to them? Not by saying the scripture says or the Bible says. He appeals to them by just talking to them about what they can observe through creation. And and the reason why I'm mentioning that to you is because I think there's a lesson to be learned for us here as we share the gospel. We need to be mindful of the crowd that we're speaking to. I don't think it's always super effective when we go to a crowd that doesn't believe the scripture has authority. They don't believe it's God's word. They don't have any sort of religious background. And we start trying to tell them the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Well, um, we should certainly proclaim biblical truth, but appealing to the Bible with authority uh, to people who don't even yet necessarily believe in the God of the Bible might be just kind of a waste of time. So what does Paul do? He says, no, let's start by appealing to creation. Let's get you to believe in the living God. And then later he'll start to bring in what this living God has said and done. I, I just think it, it'd be really important for us to be mindful of where people are at before we try to bring the gospel to them um, and start to appeal to them in a way that makes sense. And this This is the pattern we're going to see with the Apostle Paul. When we get into Acts chapter 17, we're going to see him do this. He's trying to build a bridge in ways that make sense with people. Um, Before he brings in biblical teaching, he tries to make a connection point with them in a way that would make sense to where they're at. Now in verse 16, he continues talking about this living God who's created. He says, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, okay, this God, the living God, the God who we bring you the message about him, the God who just healed this crippled man, that God, he's saying, he has borne witness to himself. He has, he has done this through creation, by giving you good gifts from creation, um, even though you haven't recognized him, even though the nations for years have walked in their own ways and lived in their, according to their own desires, God, this one God still gave them rain from heaven. He still gave them seasons of fruitfulness. He still gave them times of happiness and joy uh, to some extent. And he's saying that Really, God still does good even to the unbelieving world. This is called the doctrine of common grace. It's God's kindness to people who still, you know, who who just reject him and don't even believe in him. It's, It's God's goodness when he does natural things like let all mankind, whether believers or not, experience sunrise and sunset and 
rain and wind and food and drink. It's, it's when God allows us to experience personal things like love and happiness and family and friends and skills and abilities, those types of things that he's given to all men, not just believers. That's God's common grace. And Paul is saying, the God who I come and proclaim to you, he has had common grace to all men. He, this is how he has borne witness to himself. You didn't create yourself. You didn't make the rain fall. You didn't, you know, make the crops produce fruit. God has done this. All these natural living things bear witness to the one true God, not to your plethora of, you know, Greek gods. Paul would later write to the church in Rome and he would say it like this. Romans 1 verse 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, right? Talking about mankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, talking about mankind, they are without excuse. So Paul is saying, you know, all, you know, all of mankind has no excuse to not believe in God. We see his power, we see his glory in all of the creation around us. God's common grace has borne witness to him. That doesn't mean that all men will accept him or accept that witness, but Paul goes on to say this in Romans 1, uh, 21 through 23. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul is saying, you know, people... All mankind, in their heart, they know that God is there, but that doesn't mean they want to honor him. They don't want to honor him. They don't want to give him thanks. Why don't people want to give him thanks? Because when you say thank you to somebody, you're recognizing first that that person exists, and you're recognizing that they, they gave you something that you didn't give to yourself. And so people don't recognize God because they don't want to acknowledge that gifts come from him. They don't even want to acknowledge that he's there. So instead of honoring God, what has happened through the history of the world, people make false gods, they make idols, they make statues, they make up characters like Zeus and Hermes to worship. They make up ideas and philosophies uh, that kind of allow them to kind of push away God from their mind and from their thinking. And so what they're doing is, is really... Man is trying to make God into man's image, which is exactly opposite of scripture, right? They're, it's God who has made man in his image. But Romans, you know, in Romans, Paul is showing how men have a tendency to do that. And here in Lystra, in our text in Acts, Paul is asking these people to consider how the one true God is the creator He's borne witness to himself through creation. He's been good to them even when they didn't believe in him. But now they should believe in him and they should turn away from their man-made false gods, their vain things. Well, look what verse 18 says about the people's response. Verse 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So you can imagine Paul and Barnabas, man, they're, they're running out to the crowds, they're tearing their shirt, they're yelling like, don't give us the worship that God deserves. Don't, you know, he, there's the one true God and we're not him. Don't ascribe divine status to us. Don't sacrifice to us. But it says that they could scarcely restrain the people, which means the people were bent on doing this and it was very difficult for the apostle Paul and Barnabas to um, not let that happen. Nevertheless, they fought against it. 
They didn't want to receive any sort of glory for themselves that God alone deserved. Why is that? Because what's the point of this text? All credit for effective ministry belongs to God alone, not to man. And that's the big point of this passage. So how does this apply to us, okay? How does all this, we've, I don't think in our culture today we have a whole lot of people who are going out and they're ascribing um, divine God-like status of Hermes and Zeus and Greek mythology to like human beings like alive today. And we don't see that exact same correlation. But what we do see a lot of times is people elevating Christian leaders to a higher status than they deserve. The whole Christian celebrity thing is a big deal in our culture. And so as I've thought about how to apply this and, and what our takeaway should be. Really, the one takeaway for us today that I want to talk about is this, that guys, we have to learn to think rightly about the Christian celebrity culture of our day. We need to learn to think rightly about the Christian celebrity culture of our day. The whole Christian celebrity thing is real. Um, we, we have favorite authors or speakers or podcasters or YouTubers or, you know, athletes or musicians and People who are, are Christians, but they have a significant level of notoriety. And on the one hand, we, we have all sorts of Christians following popular Christians. And on the other hand, we have all sorts of Christians demonizing popular Christians. I think in the early 2000s, you know, at least when I, there's been a little bit of a shift since then. I think in the early 2000s, the celebrity Christian culture was really strong and really prominent. I think that's kind of faded away and kind of went to the other extreme now where it's like, man, it's almost like if any Christian is kind of popular in any way, we're immediately skeptical or cynical. And, you know, there's, so how do we think about this? The tension that, that's there. How should we think about this whole Christian celebrity type culture we find ourselves in? Seven guiding principles. I'm going to fly through these if you're taking notes. If you don't catch them on your notes, you can listen later and, and get them. But seven guiding principles on Christian celebrity culture. Here we go. First one is this. We need to remember God has always raised up influential leaders among his people. He's always done it. Abraham, Moses, David, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, Old Testament and New Testament, filled with influential Christian leaders. Even in church history, we see the church fathers, we see the reformers, we see people like the revivalists of the past couple centuries, right? This has happened. It will continue to happen very likely. We shouldn't be surprised when people in our day and when our, in our culture um, gain a level of influence um, and are looked to as very significant le leaders in today's world. This is the way it's always been. Second principle that needs to guide us, having notoriety doesn't automatically make someone bad. Having notoriety doesn't automatically make someone bad. I'm mentioning that because of, I think, the way we've swung the pendulum to start to think negatively about anybody who kind of has a stage or a platform or a certain amount of influence. Here's what I would say. I would challenge anybody to show me a passage of scripture that says that being popular or having influence in and of itself is a sinful thing. I don't think you can find one. In fact, what I think you'll see in scripture is that the idea of having a good reputation is a very important thing. Proverbs 22 says that it is um, a good name is, is desirable and precious above riches. I think the scripture teaches us that we should try to have as much influence for the Lord as he would allow. The apostle Paul specifically talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15 through 17, where he wants his influence to expand, but he balances it saying, make my only boast be in Christ. So you can have both the desire to make an impact and have an influence, for, but it needs to be there to do so for Christ. 
Yes, there are people who wrongly crave power and popularity and, you know, uh, influence for, for um, kind of squirrely motives. Jesus warned against this in Matthew 6 where he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Right? Jesus knew that some people were going to do that. But we also need to remember, man, Christian leaders, it's okay for them to want to have a good name and to have impact for Jesus. So, and let me just say this. Uh, at a very basic level, we need to remember Jesus Christ himself was popular. He had notoriety, and yet he was without sin. So having notoriety and influence isn't necessarily, it isn't automatically a bad thing. Third principle. Guys, we need to recognize that God apportions gifts to men for his purposes. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that, that God apportions gifts to his people. We can't determine what kind of gifts we have. Other people can't determine what sort of spiritual gifts they have. God has just given gifts in different uh, ways to different people, and he does so for his purposes, to build up his church. And I think we would be better off if we were quick to reaffirm when we see a gifted person to say, you know what, God has gifted that person. He's gifted them. He's done so for his purposes. Another guiding principle for us, number four, is that we need to remember that honoring Christian leaders can actually be a good thing. It's very biblical in some ways. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13 says we should give recognition and highly regard those who lead us in the Lord. 1 Timothy 5, 17 says the elders who lead well are worthy of double honor. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He also says in Philippians 3, 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. All right, so all that to say, um, Honoring honorable Christian leaders is a, is a very biblical thing. It's okay to follow them, to follow their example in, in those ways as they're imitating Christ. It's okay for you to admire people and want to go and meet them or shake their hands at a meeting or, you know, take a picture of them or, you know, whatever it is. It's, it, there's not anything automatically wrong with that so long as you're not elevating them above the Lord. You know, I was just thinking the other day, like, um, one of my Christian heroes that's alive right now is, as I've mentioned many times, is John Piper. I've never met him, but if the Lord calls him home while I'm still alive, you know, I hope that I could just go to his funeral and honor him that way, you know, just not because I'm elevating him to superstar status or anything. I just appreciate who he is and the impact he's had on me and many others. And my point is just saying that we can properly esteem Christian leaders and it's not automatically a bad thing. But here's where we go wrong. Fifth principle deifying and dividing is where we go wrong. When we deify Christian leaders, we turn them into like some sort of godlike status in our eyes. We are off track when we do that. How do we know when we start to deify somebody and put them in the place where only Jesus belongs? Just some indicators that, you know, we need to be, I need to look out in my life and you probably would do well to do the same. If we find ourselves quoting our favorite author more than we quote scripture, we're probably on the wrong track. If we find ourselves being more interested in being like a particular person rather than being like Jesus, we're probably off track. If one of our Christian leaders has a failure and our faith falls apart or is tempted to fall apart, what does that mean? It means we've probably been elevating them on too high of a spiritual status. So let's not deify men, putting them where only God belongs. We, you know, the scripture also warns us against dividing 
over our favorite Christian leader. Whenever we talk about this topic, 1 Corinthians 1 comes up where Paul says, hey, some people follow Paul, some people follow Apollos, some people uh, follow uh, Peter, uh, other people follow Jesus. Okay, Here, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with following Paul or Peter or Apollos. What is wrong with them? It will, there, let, me, let me back that up. There's nothing wrong with Peter, Paul, or Apollos themselves. They were godly men. Okay? What, what's wrong is when we start to divide over our preferred person. You know, um, we don't want to divide over our, 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 our church or our Christian circles over preferred godly people. So let's not deify or divide over our prefer, preferred human leaders. And here's the thing, this, there's, I think the scripture addresses this because of the next principle. Remember, all of us have the propensity to make idols in our hearts. Our human hearts will continue to make idols. That's what John Calvin said. He said the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And I just think that is so true. This means that any of us can have, be vulnerable to making an idol out of our favorite Christian leader. Any Christian leader can be vulnerable to making an idol out of man's approval. Both are possible. It can happen. If it wasn't possible, it wouldn't need to be addressed in scripture, but it is because God knows our hearts can do that. So we need to be cautious about the idols in our hearts. But the last and guiding principle, really the point of this sermon text is this, for all good things, remember, God deserves all glory. For all good things, God deserves all glory. That's really the, the bottom line. For any good thing that happens in our life, for any way that God works in our lives to minister to other people, for anything that he, great that he does in this church, it's all by his grace. Therefore, he gets all the glory. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter six, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ. Or as John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. Right? All credit for effective ministry belongs to God, not to man. Lord, we stop now and I, um, I ask that you would protect us from the vulnerability that we all have in our hearts to put people on pedestals where only you belong. Um, Lord, would you protect us from that? Would you, Lord, let this church truly be, I mean, truly in, a, in the deepest heart of our hearts, Lord, to be about exalting you above all. Lord, make us quick to give you glory. Lord, I pray that you would protect the leaders of this church, myself included, for ever letting our motivation become um, about something other than your glory. Protect us from the motive of self-glory. I pray, Lord, that um, you would give us uh, something like you gave to Paul and Barnabas, uh, oh, a zeal, a passion for very quickly def deflecting glory off of ourselves and uh, very quickly onto you. And so, Lord, um, apart from you, we're nothing. And so, Lord, we remember in this moment that you deserve all glory. Let us live that out day by day. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.